Social media are complicated, with some research suggesting they're important spaces for digital community building, and other scholars pointing out how social media can serve to actually disconnect people from one another. A growing concern among both academics and the public is the ways in which misinformation and conspiracy move through social media networks. That's a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department. Our guest today is Sander Vanderlinden. Vanderlinden is Professor of Social Psychology and Society in the Department of Psychology at the University of Cambridge and Director of the Cambridge Social Decision-Making Lab. His research interests center around the psychology of human judgment, communication, and decision-making, in particular He's interested in the influence and persuasion process and how people gain resistance to persuasion by misinformation through psychological inoculation. His research spans from social psychology to cognitive science using a variety of techniques and has been featured in such outlets as The New York Times, the BBC, The Economist and NBC Nightly News. Sander, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to be on the show. You recently co-authored a paper about how conspiracy moves through Twitter, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about sort of what sparked your interest in that particular topic and maybe even that topic in that space. Yeah. Um, well, you know, my interest in conspiracy theories has been long, long standing because uh, when I was young, one of my brothers was really enthralled in the whole uh, truther movement. Uh, and we had we had very very long debates, and we would get our information from very different sources. Um, and uh, you know, this this was around the time that uh, you know I was in high school, maybe or or first year of college, and and so um, I became really fascinated by people's belief systems and the psychology of it. And um, you know, I wouldn't say that that motivated me to study psychology necessarily, but it was it was it was interesting to have those discussions. Um, so that was an early sort of motivator. Uh, but for that study that you mentioned particularly, it's if you, if you look at a lot of the research, you know, that people do on this topic, then often what we do is we ask a bunch of students uh, to rate, you know, how likely they are to believe in, in some conspiracy theory. And then we look at what correlates with, with that belief. And one of the things that we got frustrated with is that real conspiracy theorists don't want to come to our lab. (laughs) (laughs) They'll they'll probably be a microchip implanted if they did, you know. (laughs) Exactly. We're part of the conspiracy, you know, at the scientists and everything. And so, I mean, there are some techniques people have used. I have a colleague who infiltrated the Flat Earth Conference and things like that. But but we... we, um, yeah, but then the problem is that, that you know, you go through ethics committees and you have to disclose what, why you're asking people questions and then they still don't want to participate, right? And so, yeah. you know, uh, one way around that for us was to use these sort of new computational methods that allow you to scrape, you know, I guess, quote unquote, big data, although everyone uses that word, you know, it really depends on what, what's big, what's not big. But for us, for us, it's big because we usually deal with, you know, 100 students, 200 students. And so we were able to to actually look at the top uh, accounts of the major conspiracy theorists on Twitter. So so the actual, you know, main sort of spreaders. And we scraped all of their timeline data. Um, and then also we looked at a random subset of their followers. And we tried to sort of map out the structure of their 
social network and what they were talking about. And, and one of the things we, and we did the same for popular scientists, by the way. So we looked at who the top popular scientists are and see what they're talking about and what their followers are talking about. And there were some really interesting, uh, interesting differences. So for example, we found that the conspiracy clusters really had higher scores on themes like fear and anxiety. You know, they were promoting information that contained those type of themes. Um, they were also looking uh, at, there was a lot of distrust, you know, things you would, you would expect, but also some things that we didn't necessarily anticipate. So for example, they were not as high on promoting certainty as we thought. In fact, the scientists also had a lot of certainty in their language, which was interesting because scientific process is, is very uncertain in some ways. And so there were some interesting differences, but by and large, we found that, uh, you know, they were, they were very high on the use of profanities um, uh, in, in their language. Uh, death, religion were, were big themes. Um, and, you know, it kind of makes sense, you know, it's always, it's always about some mysterious cover up of somebody who died um, or, you know, whether it's Princess Diana, Osama bin Laden. And so, you know, it, and what we found is that the followers adopt a lot of this language too. And that's kind of why it's, why it spreads. I mean, it wasn't a causal study. So, you know, we can't say that, you know, one caused the other, but it was, it was interesting that there was such a, an association between what the, in what we call the influencers we're talking about and how their followers were sort of echoing those concerns. Uh, and so very, very negative conversations overall. How did you identify the top conspiracy spreaders? I, so I imagine that identifying popular scientists would be fairly easy-ish, right? Because they identify themselves as scientists. You can look and see how big their following is and how much they're tweeting. I wonder how you identify people who are pushing conspiracy theories, because I would imagine they don't say, like, I'm a conspiracy <laughs> theorist, right? So I wonder how you identified them going into the study. Yeah, so basically what we did, I mean, it's just it's just as, as what you said just now, we looked at uh, one key metric, and that is the, the number of followers that they had at the time uh, of the study. Um, and a lot of them are self, I mean, they're, they're, I guess, not self declared, but, but they're widely known as, as conspiracy theorists. So, so I, I, I would name the names, but our ethics application suggested that we keep it anonymous. Um, right. And so I, I, I you know, I, won't, I can't share the names of the people we included, but we, we did have we did have blacked out Twitter handles. And so for the top scientists, for example, um, uh, there would be a guy who likes science. Uh, uh, and so and so, you know, as the, and so it's you know, not completely anonymous of, in terms of who, who it was, but uh, it would be the same for the, the conspiracy uh, sort of theorists. And in fact, some of them are no longer on Twitter because they've been banned for, for floating conspiratorial material uh, too much. Uh, and so there were there were pretty much the, the people everyone are aware of in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the big producers of conspiratorial content and then a random sample of their followers. And it was just by popularity metric, which is interesting because the, the actual list was heavily biased towards pretty much white males. Uh, um, and so it wasn't it wasn't a representative sample um, um, particularly because, you know, the all sorts of people who, who flow conspiracy theorists, I suppose. But the most popular ones on Twitter at that time all had that same sort of characteristic. 
Uh, you know, this is, I have so many questions. I mean, this, this is such a cool study. Uh, you know, I've, the idea of, of, of diving in and, and sort of defining the, this particular collection of, of people that are starting these conspiracy tweets and, and then kind of then tr tracking their followers to see how that behavior occurs. I, I, I really like the idea that, that you're using this paradigm of this case control mm. kind of model and and, and and how you describe this. It's neat to see this kind of uh, carryover of methods that might be used in other contexts now being used to define a you know the individual as essentially the source of conspiracy as a as a case and the controls being scientists. Did you do any additional matching of the scientist controls to these conspiracy cases? Yeah, it's a great question. And in fact, it's it's, it's really interesting you say this because we thought it was cool to do to, to adopt like a case control study as they're called in this context. Uh, but one of the reviewers didn't think it was that cool, and they, they had a whole they had a whole story about our 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 uh, subpar causal inference strategy with the case control design and whatnot. And and we said, look, you know, I mean, it, if we do a highly controlled experiment, we can have an unbiased causal estimator, right? But if we're going to do something messy in the real world, I mean, this is this is it. Um, and so this is this is as uh, you know as uh, as as clean as we could get it. But um, we uh, we didn't do a whole lot of matching, no. And so this is, I, I think this would be a compound to keep in mind because yeah. we were balancing um, the objectivity of the metric. So we had some concerns from reviewers that, you know, other other criteria, you know, when we sort of pre-registered the, 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 the design, there were concerns that people said, oh, but how do you select people based on what criteria? And it could all seem subjective. And so the only criteria that everyone agreed on was objective was the number of followers. But that also yeah. means that we couldn't match, you know, because the top 10, let's say, scientists, uh, you know, didn't, um, for example, included some, 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 some females, but the conspiracy list didn't include any females. And so we could have matched. We could have found, uh, let's say, a, a female conspiracy theorist, but they would have a very, you know, different number of followers. And this, you know, we went yeah. through sort of a whole sort of range of these concerns, and in the end, we decided to just stick with the number of followers as the as the metric. But that did create some some, yeah, matching that wasn't perfect. So people should keep that in mind for sure. I wonder in the in the paper you talk about cognitive processing. Um, and I wonder, how do you do that when you're looking at people's tweets? I imagine in a lab, right, there are ways that you could, you know, hook people up to psychometric stuff and sort of get their processing. But but what does it mean when you are looking at tweets and trying to understand cognition or, or things related to cognition? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say, you know, it's not it's not perfect. I mean, these methods are constantly developing and we have better methods coming out, you know, every every few years. But the, the main tool that we use is called the loop dictionary. It's the uh, linguistic, as it's called, the linguistic inquiry word count. Um, and so it, it's, it's basically a psychological dictionary. So what, what this team did, and they've been doing this for a long time, is they, they classified words into psychological themes, grouped them, uh, and based on millions and millions of data points, they've kind of validated these data sets across hundreds of different studies. Um, so it's, it's a very well-known uh, sort of dictionary because that's the problem with some of these dictionaries some some aren't used a lot some aren't validated so this is kind of the one of the biggest ones and then you get these fancy sounding themes like cognitive processes but but i think you know in the end the sub themes are a bit clearer so under cognitive processes what we would be looking for are things like causal language and so the reason why that's interesting for for conspiracy theorists is that a lot of the theories suggest that the reason why people 
adopt conspiratorial beliefs is because they want to make causal connections where there are none. So 5G towers and coronavirus cases could be coincidence, right? But no, there's a causal connection. And so we thought that this search for causality would show up in the language that people use. You know, so that's an example. And then an example of the words in the tweets that would be classified as having scores that are higher on, on causality, uh, you know, would, would obviously be the word cause itself, uh, but also related words like effect, uh, predict, uh, and, and, the, and you know, these, these sorts of words. Um, uh, surprisingly, we actually found that, that causal language wasn't a major factor. Uh, and I, I think coming back to the, the other point, this, this could be due to the case control design, right? Because our, our control was scientists who also tend to use uh, a bit of causal language. And so maybe if we had used a different group, let's say lay, uh, lay audience, maybe the conspiracy folks would have, would have stood out more. So that, that's another discussion. But compared to scientists, we didn't actually find, even though we hypothesized, uh, that they used much more causal uh, sort of language. There was some certainty seeking language, which is also part of the, the conspiratorial worldview that they want certain answers. You know, it's it's deterministic. You know, these group of people are responsible for it. Um, so that's that's sort of how the words come together. And so for, for other te themes like anger, um, um, you know, there would, there would be words like hate um, that are classified under anger. And so that's how these dictionaries work. Um, they have more sophisticated ones now that, that use the whole semantic context of a sentence to infer the meaning. Um, and so there's very fancy kind of uh, topic models, as they're called. We tried that, but we ran our study actually before Twitter increased the word count. And so, as you know, as people might know on Twitter, before the word count, it was very short, uh, short sort of structures. And so those topic models really didn't reveal anything interesting for us because there wasn't enough text to really work with. So we stuck with a, a relatively simple method for our study, but there's certainly other studies now um, using, you know, longer Facebook posts or things like that, where you can, you can get more intricate themes. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to University of Cambridge's Sander Vanderlinden about conspiracy and misinformation in social media. I wonder, given the work you've done, what advice you would have for journalists who are covering the floating of conspiracy theory in social media? Because it's something that journalists love to cover and talk about. And I wonder if you have sort of, you know, best practices about how to cover it well and thoughtfully. Yeah, and it is it is such a big topic. I think some of our findings from our research indicate that it's it's not good to repeat falsehoods a lot or myths because what happens is you have not always, but often the way that our memories work is that when you repeat something that's already known to people, you increase its familiarity, what we call the fluency with which people process things. So the reason why we know that two plus two is four is because we've heard it a lot. Um, and it feels familiar and we know the answer and that's that's a good thing. But unfortunately, it works the same way with bad information. And so, the, the, you know, the more we repeat something, the more familiar it becomes in the brain kind of mistakes familiarity for for having truth. And so that's that's a problem. And and this operates regardless of of factual knowledge. So even when people know the correct answer, it's hard to resist it when you hear something a lot. So you, you're still likely to think it's you know true, even though even though you know that it's not. And that w one example of this that I like to use is uh, you know if I if I tell you that you know one of the restaurants I went to one of the restaurants on your street had a good time, but I got this terrible food poisoning. It was really terrible. Then two weeks later, I tell you, you know what? I made a mistake. It wasn't your street. It was somebody else's street. But every time you go past that restaurant now, you're going to think food poisoning. Um, and so and so that's kind of how, how that how that works. And for that reason, I think it's important to, to what we call sort of, you know, pre-bunk 
misconceptions when you write an article and try to not repeat the myth too often. So when you cover the conspiracy, obviously you don't want to spread it um, by, by repeating it too often, but also instead of debunking it somewhere at the end of the story where people might not go out and actually read it, you want to be upfront and, and kind of what we call inoculate or immunize people uh, before they then go on to read about the conspiracy because you don't want to run the risk of, of, you know, it sort of catching on. So I think that's one of the best practice sort of, you know, ingredients that, that we've developed is don't repeat it too often, um, pre-bunk it uh, in advance. And if you do have to debunk it, you have to give people a credible alternative. That's kind of the last thing I'll, I'll say about that, because one of the things about why corrections and, and, and fact-checking isn't always effective is because they don't always provide people with an alternative explanation. So when I tell you that something is wrong, your memory will encode it you know, as, as being incorrect. But if there's no alternative, it's going to continue to make inferences uh, from, from that knowledge. Uh, and so we, we need an alternative to replace it with. And that's that's often not present in, in the articles when they're covered. You know, you might say, oh, there's a satanic pedophile ring operating, you know, within within government somewhere. But people say, if that's not happening, then what is happening? Um, and so people need an alternative. That's really interesting. I have a colleague here in actually MJF at Miami, uh, Andrew Peck, who's a folklorist who studies communication. And one mm -hmm. of he, he's published an article about this idea of amplification, which I think connects to this idea of repetition, where you amplify a message and people hear it over and over and over again. And that sort of helps speed, you know, from this more qualitative perspective, stuff sort of moving because people hear it. There's no alternative. It gets repeated and it starts feeling true. And so something that was very, a very small rumor gets amplified into this giant thing because it keeps getting repeated without being sort of questioned. So it's really interesting how that connects. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, what I want to pivot in a second to the, the, stu the study, the experimental work that you did in terms of shift of perception. You know, some of the work where you looked at, at kind of contrasting the simple facts, fake news, and then kind of partial yeah. and full vaccination. I think that's, that's going to be a fun piece. But I can't go there yet, Sandra. I, I can't because <laughs> yeah, I, right. yeah, yeah, I, I'm going to get there in a second. And, but when you're talking about this linguistic analysis and thinking about this, I, I, I found myself thinking, boy, that's, th there's lots of really challenging aspects of it. I mean, one, you've talked about having a dictionary for mapping topics and content. There's, there's also a sense of, of intensity or valence of, of kind of the yeah. expression. It's one thing to say you hate something. It's another to say you dislike it. You know, so even on that scale, when you start saying there's a negative as aspect, negative emotion associated, there's a there's an intensity. So I'm, my, my questions, you know, and this is going to drive Rosemary crazy because I always do this. There's sort of two components <laughs> here to this question. <laughs> One is this issue of of kind of intensity of feeling. But then then you also you, you begged another question, which was, what do you do now in terms of replicating this? You know, you've told us that you did this study at a certain point in time prior to some of the social media outlets, you know, restricting access for people that are deemed, you know, kind of promoting conspiracy. What are you doing now that, that there's been a change to 200 and, you know, 280 versus 140 characters? So are there plans to replicate? So the, the two-part question is kind of valence or intensity of emotion, and then the second part is replication to see about whether or not this, this holds up into the future. Yeah, both are great points. I think we didn't look at this, but it's certainly true that there's a second parameter here, which is the valence, right? You know, the intensity of the emotion. And uh, there's other research which has looked at that. So for example, they've found that 
the the valence of of the negative emotions is higher among conspiracy theorists and online networks uh, when compared to to control groups. So they have found that. I mean, we didn't do that, but other research has found that. And the the question about replication is a is a great one. Um, and it's you know in in the study we write it was kind of a unique period because some of the the people that 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 we followed on Twitter are no longer on Twitter. They've been kicked off. So so you know how how do you replicate that? The character count has has changed. Uh, and so I, I think it is very difficult to replicate these kinds of studies. And it's interesting because we do engage in in regular sort of. Uh, replication studies of, uh, you know, sort of do our, our little bit of contribution to the field. Uh, and it's relatively straightforward to replicate, you know, controlled laboratory experiments where we can recreate these conditions. But the, the field studies, and that's why you see that it's actually very difficult more generally to replicate field studies, not just online, but also offline when you go to a store or something like that. This is very, just very difficult to recreate these conditions. And so it's, it's, it's challenging, I think, in terms of uh, how we would do it is that our approach was relatively, even though the, the computational stuff is often exploratory bottom-up, we did have some strong theoretical dimensions that we started with, um, even though they weren't all confirmed, of course. But I would expect that other research, on even on other platforms using different kinds of posts, would replicate these these general patterns. So to me, it would seem it would seem like this, basically, that you know, if there is some, and this is what we're trying to get at in the paper, if there's some common uh, um, you know, semantic structure to the language of conspiracy, then this should emerge in different contexts on different platforms in, in language use. And even though it might not be exactly the same, it would have to be a kind of conceptual type of replication, which uses a similar but not the exact same method. Um, and so far, that's pretty much what you see. I mean, every study that I've looked at on, on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, finds that conspiracy theorists are much more emotional in their expression, particularly negative emotions like anger and anxiety. So that seems to replicate uh, even in, in all these sort of different studies using different platforms, um, the findings around um, the sort of outgrouping are, are pretty consistent too. Uh, and then things that are less consistent around around cognitive, you know, causality and certainty that actually seems less consistent across different studies. Um, and so then it's difficult to tell whether it's because of the studies or the designs, and then you get these sort of, you know, comparability issues. But um, overall, I think how we would replicate it is we would do the same thing uh, with the new, uh, you know, with a slightly adjusted set of, of influencers using the new word count, but the same other otherwise things exactly the same. And we would expect, you know, similar results. I mean, if we didn't find similar results, I would put it now and saying that, you know, they're there seems to be high variability here that um, that's either attributable to 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 the you know to the to the previous method uh, or the, the the particular case control or the, or the you know designs or there's something more generalizable. But from what I've seen on all these different studies is that these results appear to be fairly generalizable, um, even though they've used different kinds of uh, of, uh, of methods. But yeah, it's and the last thing I'll say about this is so interesting because in psychology, if you compare it to I don't know high density physics. Um, you know, social conversations change uh, over time. And so, uh, you know, in terms of replicating sentiment and things like that, it's, it's tricky. Um, and and I, I'm not even sure if we all know what the standards for that should uh, should should be. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's a common characteristic of social media. And another study we did where we looked at millions of users on both Twitter and Facebook, uh, led by my graduate student, we looked at what the predictors of virality are on these platforms. And Oh, wow. Yeah. And so this was this was the all U.S. congressional social media accounts and all major media outlets in the U.S. And we scraped, you know, all of the, the 
posts we could get in, in a specific time period over a year um, on both Facebook and Twitter. And then we looked at what the predictors of resharing and reposting were. And we were replicating previous research, which finds that the more emotional the tone of the post, the more it goes viral, you know, quote unquote, goes viral. Um, and that is using uh, standard emotional dictionaries like, you know, things like Empath, which is a Python sort of software package for the, the geeks who are interested in that. Uh, but 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 uh, um, moral words. So and, and especially the combo of moral emotional words. So so, you know, when you combine hate with murder and things like that, um, um, and, and that was well established. But what we found in addition was that the biggest predictor by far was outgroup language. So if you're a liberal and you were posting about a conservative and vice versa, that really caused a huge spike in retweets and shares on top of those other factors. And especially when it was negative. So when you were dunking the, the other side and, and that was consistent on Facebook, on Twitter, for media accounts, for congressional accounts. Um, that was just uh, the biggest, again, it was associative, but it was the biggest pattern and the largest odds ratios, the likelihood across all of the predictors, uh, how much you were you were basically trash talking about the other side. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you have my head spinning here, Sandra. This is this is really, you know, I, I can tell Rosemary and I are duking it out to see who can ask the next question, which tells you that's a, that's a good sign in terms of this. I, you know, I, I found myself thinking, Gosh, I wonder what are, you started to touch on this with the de the characteristics of kind of who is doing this type of retweeting and who's the characteristics you you alluded to some of the characteristics of of the the conspiracy originators. Um, I'm curious about whether or not this holds up if you're looking outside. If this is sort of an internationally true characteristic. Oh. You know, you've mentioned a lot of this. Have you primarily been studying U.S. originators? And if, if so, would this apply if you were looking at UK kind of uh, originators of conspiracy as well as scientists? I'm just curious how that plays out. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Uh, I should say that that there's generally there is the group that that does tend to be the sort of you know uh, white male YouTube type of audience. That's you know that that's that's well defined. But then there there are also minorities who are spreading conspiracy theories. Uh, but that's for totally different reasons, right? That's because of a complicated history with minorities actually being uh, uh, persecuted, say persecuted, but actually experimented on, for example, because because those conspiracies tend to be specifically about health uh, because of you know bad you know bad historic sort of reasons, and so that's a, I think a very separate issue to address in terms of why that content is spreading, um, and that you know that's that's not only within the U.S. but also in other countries. But if you if you zoom out. And look at the sort of you know mainstream conspiracy content and why that spreads. You find that those characteristics are pretty similar in the UK, the US, and Australia. So the Commonwealth and the US are actually pretty pretty similar. But the US is unique in 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 the level and intensity, and I think in the quantity of conspiratorial content. So if you look at international analyses, for example, about people endorsing conspiracies about climate change and things like that. Um, the 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 U.S. stands out uh, as as being one of the only countries where that is you know so high and so so prevalent and same with things like QAnon. Uh, even even though I'm originally from the Netherlands, we had one QAnon case that made it to the Netherlands where people were digging up graves because they they thought there was some satanic cult ring going on. Um, and yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's it's bizarre how. 
how it makes its way across the the, the Atlantic. But um, but that was an isolated case, and so I think you know by by and large what you see is that the U.S. is pretty special uh, in terms of um, uh, yeah of, of conspiracy theories and the people who um, who spread them. Um, so it's not it's not necessarily the same in in other countries. Much more diverse, I think, in other countries. The makeup of of the audience. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Sander, thank you so much for joining yeah. us today. Yeah, thank you, Sander. My pleasure. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.